Welcome to this fourth episode of the Coffee Room Chat in ENT, held by the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh in collaboration with ENT UK. Today's episode comes from the British Society of Facial Plastic Surgery, and I'm really pleased to be able to introduce Peter Andrews, who is a rhinologist uh, from UCL in London and current president of the British Society of Facial Plastic Surgery, who will be talking to Raj Bala. And Raj is a rhinologist from Manchester and is also the current president of the British Rhinological Society. And they'll be discussing how they select patients for rhinoplasty uh, but importantly, the assessment process that they go through in order to come to a decision for surgery with the patients. Um, so, Peter, um, let's let's start by just talking about a, a case that uh, I have operated on um, recently. Um, so she's a 40 year old lady um, who came to see me uh, for an opinion about uh, a revision rhinoplasty, a revision nasal operation. And she'd had a primary rhinoplasty eight years previously. Um, so what, what sorts of things should I be talking to her about? What sorts of questions should I be asking her? Thanks, Raj. So what's going through my mind at the moment with any revision case is fundamentally trying to improve on the areas which remain not working in essence whether that's function or aesthetics and this very much depends on the setting uh, within the nhs the focus is primarily on function and within the private setting the focus is on on function as well as aesthetics for me the um the areas for me to focus on would be also the age of the patient. I think this is important. I'm always slightly wary of operating on patients who are over the age of 40, reaching into 50, because you're looking at other factors, particularly with regards to weakness of skin and supporting ligaments. So that's always yeah. up there as a cause of concern and fundamentally I'm always looking at ways of lifting the nose which is in keeping with any form of rejuvenation yeah um but I don't know about you Raj but for me it's really just focusing on what the issues are with the patients so I'll be very interested on how you approach this particular lady so Peter I, I always start by getting a feel for the patient uh, who's sitting in front of me um so um, it's hard to put into words, but it's almost that sixth sense of uh, is the person sitting in front of me sitting there because they have a genuine concern? Can I see that concern that they have? And are they being realistic about it? Are they exaggerating it? And is it something that if I were to try to help to improve, not just a, a successful outcome, but if things didn't go quite to plan or the result wasn't absolutely perfect, would this be a, a reasonable person who would accept that I've done the best that I possibly can to try to help them? So 
I, I take a, a sort of general history. I get a context for the patient. I try and find out a little bit about them, you know, occupation and what their motivation was perhaps for having their, their operation the first time around. And then um, to try to get a sense, as you've already said, about what the problem is currently. Is it just function? Is it function and appearance? Or is it just appearance? Now, the patient I'm alluding to um, looked like she'd had um, a slight over-reduction of her, of her dorsum. So a typical sort of ski slope appearance to the dorsum of the nose, but quite low. Um, she'd had an open approach previously, so a nice mid-columnar incision, okay, placed in, in uh, placed appropriately. Uh, but I think uh, what she was quite aware of was that even though the dorsum had been taken down, the tip of her nose hadn't been addressed and was still over-projected and under-rotated. She didn't give um, any sense that she had an airflow issue. So this was purely, purely um, a cosmetic improvement in the appearance of the nose. So um, with that in mind, I mean, we're talking about a revision rhinoplasty operation here, but a lot of what we're going to talk about and a lot of what we're going to cover applies to primary rhinoplasties as well, but it's just more exaggerated. It's more important when you're having those conversations with a patient who's seeking a revision operation. Would you, would you say that's fair? I think that's fair. I think, I think just from listening to the story of this patient, it sounds like the operation originally probably ticked the box for functionality, but aesthetically didn't quite. And from what you're saying, it, it sounds like, um, the the three parts of the nose i always divide i don't know about you Raj. i always divide the nose into three parts the bony upper part the middle sort of cartilaginous part and then the tip and it sounds like the bony part has been over resected which is quite classic in 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 in, in taking a hump down but the rest of the nose hasn't quite sat in proportion to that and what i see a lot in revision cases is that the tip isn't quite sitting on the septum correctly and and it's sort of fallen off and this this is this I, I see a lot in revision cases but equally i see a lot in age-related noses where the tip just becomes longer we see that your nose does get longer in life and if anything this this case requires a readjustment of the tip onto the onto the main structure of the nose and from my experience that looks better and works better you know, good function generally yeah. matches good aesthetics. Yeah. So that that's my summary of events. I I'd be interested to see how you then took this forwards with regards to assessment. So, yeah, large, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So so that having established that her motivations were were sound, were reasonable. The next thing I did was examine the nose. Uh, as, as part of my workup, I always do a full ear, nose and throat and neck examination anyway, but then I focus, focus down on, on the nose. And um, my assessment of the nose is quite didactic, quite systematic, and it's an assessment of appearance and skin and muscle tone, as you said already, and support. And I also examine the inside of the nose um both static and dynamic so what i mean by that is on gentle nasal inspiration as well 
I want to get a sense for what the septum's doing. Is the septum sitting in the midline? Is there a perforation? So I always use an endoscope to examine the nose. I want to make sure that there's no disease of the mucosa, the sinus drainage pathways, the nasopharynx, especially if, 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 they, if the patient's complaining of nasal obstruction. I ask them to, to, to breathe in through their nose. I want to see if there's any valve collapse externally or internally, so the upper lateral cartilages, particularly in revision cases. So I want to see if there's a drawing in of those structures as the patient breathes in, patient, but just a gentle breathing cycle um, because everyone can make their noses collapse when they breathe in uh, in a forced fashion. And then I do exactly what you said, Peter. I assess the nose in three parts. I assess the bone. I assess the middle third, which is the vault. And I assess the tip complex. So um, my assessment of her was that her skin was of a reasonable thickness. You're right. She was sort of bordering that you know age group that you define there. But 40-year-old with good skin, good muscular tone in the middle of, of her face. Um, but that the bony upper third, um, so what I sensed was, was that the, the bony upper third and the mid thirds had been taken down to a low radix rather than the radix being brought up marginally and then a mixed dorsal hump being taken down proportionately. And perhaps if that had been done, then the tip might not have looked like it was projecting as much as it had. So, so my assessment then really was an over-projected tip, slightly under-rotated, nasal septum intact. You're right, the position of the septum on the anterior nasal spine is key. Is it over to one side or the other? And I'm sure you'll echo this, but straight septum, straight nose, right? Absolutely. So anyone who has a twist in their nose or a twisted septum, you've got to work really hard to get that septum straight so there's a number of surgical techniques that i know you'll adopt to try to do that so peter then I've, I've decided then maybe misguided okay maybe misguided revision case you know what these are like really difficult scarred soft tissue envelope but i feel like i can restore some balance to her nose okay so in my workup then i take some photographs for my record and for the patient's case file and I think it's very important from a medico-legal perspective that we have some sort of photographic evidence pre-intervention would you agree with that I agree I agree and also um you know I was slightly skeptical about morphing photos particularly in, well only in private practice uh, but I'm using that more now. I think it's a, it's a yeah. Good why, why have you changed, Peter? Can I? Why have you changed? Because I've done exactly the same thing. So for greater than ten years of my my career as a consultant, I didn't. Okay, and I've started to use it over the past three or four years, and I think it's fantastic. What's yeah. made you change? Yeah, I, it's, it's been an interesting journey because. You know, I, I was very much brought up on the concept of trust and, 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 and doctor-patient relationship with regards to outcomes. Um, but the more times I've been stung is the wrong word, but sometimes I've done operations thinking it's what the patient wants. But often it's not often, but sometimes it's not. And uh, that's one reason. So to avoid that, 
Uh, and secondly, it really helps you guide in that sort of in that in that sort of management planning as to how much the patient wants with regards to reduction um, and change. Uh, and it, it creates a dialogue, which I think is really important. And, and I think we need to emphasize the fact that, you know, when you're doing private operations in the private sector, you need to see the patients twice. And it forces yeah. that concept yeah. of, you know, you see the patient once, you go through the yeah. plan and then you take some photos and you see them yeah. again with some morphing outcomes. And then you get a real feel for what the patient wants. Do you send your patients uh, a copy of the letter, the consultation letter? I do. I, I do. do too. Yeah. And do you list risks and complications and revision rates? Yeah, I, I don't list it. I, I, I say I talk it through in, in the first letter. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then in the second letter in, in more detail. However, you know, I don't know about you, Raj, but my feeling also is that there's room for improvement for me there. I think in today's uh, modern consenting process which is developing which is morphing with time equally we need to be more didactic also in how we consent how we dialogue risk in the letter yeah um because fundamentally we can write the most copious letters with all the risks and all the information leaflets highlighted but unless you have a trusting relationship with your patient uh that's not going to help you um, yeah, and I think yeah. I think it's Peter, Peter. I talk about um, bleeding, infection, loss of smell, septal perforation, numbness to the nasal tip, upper lip, incisor teeth, skin changes. So things like dorsal telangiectasia, callus, yeah, skin necrosis. Okay, especially around the columella revision cases. And then revision surgery. So my figures, you know, I quote my figures, but you and I know that quoted figures um, are up to between 10 and 15% for, for rhinoplasty cases. But I think if you do a fair number of these, then you should be able to quote um, your own figures. It's important to give the patient a perspective on your practice rather than other people's practice. Reasonable? Agreed. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I send them that letter like you. And currently I also talk about COVID and the risks of COVID because this isn't urgent surgery and it's not life-saving. I point them towards the ENT UK website to read the patient information leaflet about rhinoplasty. I also ask them to watch some YouTube videos showing open approach or closed approach septal rhinoplasty so that they are well informed when they come back to see me. And they can ask questions and we can have that dialogue that you're you're alluding to there. Yeah. And if you feel comfortable, Peter, and you feel like you're on the same page and the expectations are reasonable, and I'm assuming you, you, you feel that this is something that uh, you could uh, you could take on. Absolutely. I think, you know, equally, we talk about, um, you know, grafting, don't we? And I think just going back to your point about telangiectasia and scarring is such an important point because often with revision cases, Raj, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes you need a, you know, a, 
some form of underlay or fascia to help with some irregularities. And, and I think during that cons- consultation, not at the time of consent on the day of the operation, but during that consultation, one of those two meetings, you need to talk about using other forms of underlay, whether it's their own yeah. fascia, whether it's... Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, really important in revision cases, really important. Now, you, you'll probably have experience of temporalis fascia, fascia lata. Uh, you know that I use a lot of allograft material, so things like calibrate fascia lata. I use bovine pericardium. Um, other colleagues of ours will use porcine products, for example, um, cadaveric rib costal cartilage, uh, autologous rib cartilage. All of these, I feel like you, Peter, need to be discussed so that there's no potential comeback later down the road to say, well, you didn't tell me you were going to use that. Uh, and I think that's equally like using morphing photos, um, you know, really being open and frank in those consultations about grafting, whether it's from the ear, from the rib, from the own patient, or using um, other grafts, you know, it's bovine or porcine. Get that conversation um, agreed upon there. <laughs> because I have come across patients who do query that and yeah. and, and, and best sorted then then afterwards yeah yeah agreed agreed peter last few minutes then um so particular challenges in a revision case okay so from the incision you know lifting the soft tissue envelope particular challenges difficult straightforward like the first time around i think i think you know in my experience if it's a revision case and you're the second surgeon approaching that nose whether it's my own revision or someone else's who I've taken on, you've still got a reasonable soft tissue envelope, right? However, if it's a case which has had three or four attempts, very wary there. There's a higher chance of, of, of buttonholing. Um, but that, that's just my general feeling. When I'm speaking to colleagues, I always try to get into that perichondrial plane on that medial cura. And then starting up over the dome, over that lateral pleura, get into that, hug that plane. If you hug that plane, you'll, you'll be safe. And, and that will take you into a nice safe area with regards to creating a nice subcutaneous. Okay. So for this, for this particular lady, then Peter, what I did was, um, I, I repositioned her septum on the anterior nasal spine, as you said. Okay. I uh, narrowed the bony upper third because it was quite splayed, quite wide. I augmented her dorsum and I did a balanced reduction of her nasal tip and I revised her cephalic trims just so that she had a little bit of rotation, thinning of uh, the, 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 the tip structure and lateral cruel overlays just to de-project her nose um, in a balanced fashion. So again, this was about bringing the dorsum out, but also reducing the nasal tip in a balanced fashion. Okay. So then that's the surgery. Aftercare, Peter, are you quite specific about your aftercare and duration? How long do you see, do, do you tend to see your patients for? Well, I, I, you know, I, 
just to summarise what you said there, I think the challenges in any revision surgery is always the anterior nasal spine, making sure that's straight, uh, number one. And also just making sure that tip sits on that anterior septal angle, Raj. I don't know about you, but it's often the, the tip falls off, I find. Um, so it's just bringing it back up where the tip should sit, and it's really important. And that will increase function too, because it will lift the external valve and equally lift the internal valve. Uh, but you're right, that septum needs to be straight. And if it isn't, that needs to be addressed. And I, I, I agree with everything you've done there. Aftercare. Now, if I, I'm a splint user, there are lots of people who don't use nasal splints. Um, personally, um, just like bones, if I've moved the septum, then I want the best chance for that septum to stay in the midline. And in my experience, the best chance is to put splints in as you would put spins on the outside of the nose to keep the nasal bone straight. Now, that's just my philosophy. Um, so I know deep down that not much can go wrong, apart from a big elbow to the nose. Um, so aftercare for me, it's all about chloramphenicol ointment. I love that. I think it has two major roles. One is it's just a good lubricant. And secondly, obviously, it's an antibiotic. Um, and then I do put them on a course of um, antibiotic, generally augmenting if they're not allergic to penicillin. Um, I will generally then see them at one week um, and assess. I don't know about you, Raj, but there's some very quick healers and a lot can be done at that one week to 10 days. And there's some slow healers. Sometimes I wait two weeks to remove. Yeah. From yeah. Pastor of Paris, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Yep. Okay. All right. So if we were going to summarize there, Peter, um, work within your capabilities, an accurate assessment, not just of the nasal problem or issue, but also of the patient. Do you have a rapport, a professional rapport? Are the expectations reasonable or have they set the bar too high and has it been set so high that it's unattainable? Um, anything else, Peter? Anything else to add I, to that? I, I think that's a really good summary. I think it's to be conscious with the patient that, you know, yes, you'll get a good feel for what the nose will look like at three to four weeks even. However, there is a healing process which can take up to 18 months. Those 18 months are generally in the surgeon's favour. However, if that patient is dissatisfied almost immediately, then you need to recognize that, engage with the patient. Do not disagree with the patient, Raj. I don't know about your feelings. It's to say, yes, I, yeah. I, I take on board yeah. your worries here. We'll sort this yeah. out together. We're on this journey together. I think that's so important. Um, because not all patients are happy. You know, it's complex work, complex surgery. Complex patients with psychological issues sometimes which need to be addressed. And if they do need to be addressed preoperatively. But, yeah, that's a good summary of events. Yeah. Thank you, Peter and Raj. That was a really, really helpful run through of how you assess patients with rhinoplasty and the difficulties that you face uh, during that process, as well as how that relates to uh, your surgical, surgical technique. So I hope you'll join us next week for a podcast on different options in managing conductive hearing loss. And that will be brought to us by Neil Donnelly, 
in Cambridge, but also uh, Myrtle Hall, who is an ENT surgeon from the University Medical Centre in Groningen in the Netherlands.